Well, if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand in the honor of the reading of God's Word. This isn't so much the sole passage of this morning because this is a topical sermon series, but this will be our leaping off point. And it comes from the book of Isaiah. In the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 14, this is verses 12 to 5. Here now is the word of the Lord. How are you fallen from heaven, O shining star, son of the morning? You have been thrown down to earth, you who destroyed the nations of the world. For you said to yourself, I will ascend to heaven and set my throne above God's stars. I will preside on the mountain of the gods, lowercase g, far away in the north. I will climb to the highest heavens and be like the most high. Instead, you will be brought down to the place of the dead, down to its lowest depths. Please be seated. The passage we read this morning, at least symbolically, describes Lucifer's fall from heaven. It's also described in Ezekiel 28. Now, these passages, directly at least, were referring to kings, particularly in Babylon, but it's generally accepted they also speak of the spiritual power that was behind those kings, namely the devil himself. These passages describe why he fell, but they, they don't tell us how he fell. And by the way, it refers to their, oh, shining star, that is referring to Lucifer. To Lucifer. One of the translational challenges that these passages have is the old translations tend to say Lucifer, the newer translations say shining star, or in some cases, light bearer. Ironically, the term, as I understand it, was in the Latin translation, the term was Lucifer, and it was turned into a proper name with a capital L, just like Satan was turned into a proper name with a capital S, even though it's actually a Satan, which simply means adversary. So the discussion of the old translations and the new translations, as you know, I pay a lot of attention to that. I think there is some concern there, but it's overblown. It's referring to the same individual and to the first fall from grace. As I said, it explains why he fell. Lucifer wanted to be like the Most High, but it doesn't tell us all that much about when this happened. We do know the angels were created before the earth was created. That's in Job 38. And since Lucifer fell before he tempted Adam and Eve in the garden, the first fall from heaven must have occurred sometime after the creation of the angels and before the events in Genesis chapter 3. That's the best timeline we can discern. But what really happened is one of God's highest angels launched a scheme to become like God. And what it did is it opened a door what eventually results in the serpent tempting Adam and Eve, and the result is the birth of evil and the entry of sin into the world, and the impact of that moment is far beyond we can really wrap our brains around. So with all that as something of a background, as we begin this new sermon series today titled Issues and Answers, it's a series that's going to deal with difficult questions, and I can tell you these are questions I've wrestled with. Quite honestly, I still wrestle with. But I think it's fair to say that one of the biggest challenges that Christians face is when we see the effects of evil. We see the pain of suffering. And yet these two things are connected. At times, even the greatest theologians in our history have struggled with what can appear 
can appear to be a contradiction between the existence of a loving God and the reality that evil exists. Indeed, sometimes that evil appears to be winning. No matter how mature of a believer you or I may be, we're going to struggle with this question, especially when we find evil staring us in the face. And we ask the question, how can a good and loving God allow this to go on? Well, you know, you and I aren't the first ones that have ever wrestled with this. If we go back a few thousand years, there we are. Let's take that back one. C.S. Lewis, the British theologian, was a man that was often referred to as God's storyteller. His writings tried to help give his readers some tools to better understand the things he struggled with in his life. And one of the things he particularly struggled with was the death of his wife. Now, regarding that event, I'm going to quote C.S. Lewis here. Here's what he wrote. He said, in moments such as this, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. You go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is in vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and the sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. Close quote. It's a rather blunt and pain-filled expression of what C.S. Lewis was going through at that time. But with the passage of time and the healing power of the Holy Spirit, he came to find peace in knowing that God's not only who he says he is, but that he is indeed all-loving, especially in our present-day sufferings. And God powerfully used him in ways that made him one of the most significant theologians of the 20th century. But you know, if we ask ourselves questions and we're really honest with ourselves, we ask, how can a good God allow such evil to exist? And why doesn't he do something about it? For that matter, why didn't he prevent it from happening in the first place? This is when we turn to something, and the phrase that's usually applied to it is a theodicy. You might say, what's that? Well, I'll give you the example by one of the other significant theologians of the last 50 years. He was actually born in Ann Arbor, 1932. For many years, he was the president of Calvin Seminary in Grand Rapids, Alvin Plantinga. And his definition of a theodicy was, I'll quote him, the answer to the question of why God permits evil. Now, the word theodicy is an interesting one. It's a compound word. Two Greek words, theos, referring to God, and also decay, which really means to justify. So it's a way of saying justifying God or justifying the actions of God. It's a complex way of reminding us God doesn't need to explain himself to us. But nonetheless, he does so, and he does so through his word. So when we face a really big question like this one, a tough one, it's helpful, at least to me, to break it down into some categories. And the two categories would be that evil extends not just in a moral sense, but to the natural world too. Moral evil and natural evil. The first one is when human beings do bad things to one another. That's moral evil. But natural evil is things that happen and cause great suffering. Things like earthquakes and tidal waves and hurricanes and volcanic eruptions. They're often termed natural evil. You say, well, how so? Well, if we believe that God is sovereign over all things, therefore nothing surprises him. So therefore, when things happen, he's either ordained it or he's allowed it, one of the two. If we deny both of those two, 
then we've fallen into another hole, a lower view of God, and I'll talk about that a little bit later. So we have these two categories, moral evil and natural evil, but we have to know how do we define evil? Well, that's where Augustine, famous name, one of the early church theologians, defined it as follows. Here was his quote. Evil is not a thing in and of itself. It is a parasite on that which is good. Example would be the following. If you have a hole in your pocket, the hole isn't something. The hole is the lack of something because what was there has been eaten away. In this sense, it's a theologian's way of reminding us God's original creation was not only good, God said it was very good. And Augustine's point was, since evil is a lack of something good, God cannot be the author of evil because everything that God had made was very good. And I do find this approach to be helpful because what we do know from surveys and studies that have been taken is that one of the biggest barriers to people coming to faith is they ask the question. They say, since evil and suffering exists, God therefore must not exist because a good and loving God wouldn't permit such evil and suffering to happen. That's basically what they say. But does the existence of evil argue against the existence of God? You know, Christians over the years who have wrestled with that have turned it around and they've asked the question, how do you define evil? In order to call something evil, you have to have an underlying standard of what's good. And that standard is rooted in God and his very nature. In this sense, the existence of evil becomes an argument for the existence of God, not against it. Because without a moral standard of good, we can't define evil. That moral standard of good is found in God himself, indeed in his attributes. One of my theology professors said, God does not have attributes. God is his attribute. That being said, let's go back to the difference between moral evil and natural evil. Moral evil is when human beings do awful things to one another. We lie, cheat, we steal, we hurt each other. This doesn't argue against the goodness of God. It reminds us, I think very powerfully, that something is very broken in fallen human nature today because sin entered the world in Genesis chapter 3. And you might say, okay, well, I can see that, but what about natural evil? Why can't there be less suffering in the world? Why doesn't God prevent things like earthquakes and tsunamis and tornadoes and disease? Well, our earlier scripture reading from Isaiah is referring to the very first fall into sin when Lucifer leads the uprising in heaven. For that matter, why didn't God just prevent that from happening? If we're really honest with ourselves, we wonder about that. But before we try to answer that question, I'm going to give one other example. Evil and suffering refer not only to physical pain, but emotional pain. And they're connected. They're connected. If you have ongoing great physical pain, you know that there's going to be tremendous emotional stress and vice versa. If you have ongoing emotional stress, sooner or later, it does affect your health. These two things are connected. And I'm guessing every one of us have been on both sides of that equation at some point. And those of you that are young people, if you haven't been there, you probably will be at some point. It's in moments like these if we're really honest, we ask, why, Lord? Why? Why is this happening? Couldn't you have prevented this from coming into our world? 
Now, people will sometimes even ask why God went to the trouble of creating anything if he knew that sin would enter the world and distort everything he had done in his act of creation. The thing is, is that they even begin to question whether he's all-knowing. They start to question whether sin may be surprised him. And that's where we have to ask ourselves the question, do we trust him? We can't second-guess him. You know, we have to hold fast to the idea that he's God and he knows what he's doing. And we also know something else. We do know we're living in a fallen world. This is not the way it was originally designed. The Apostle Paul reminds us in Romans 8.18, yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. But all that being said, when we consider these things, our own humanness still asks us the question, Lord, why do you let these things happen? Well, we're going to take a very brief little history lesson. You know that I always have some history lessons in here, particularly with names of people that are hard to pronounce. So we're going to go back a couple hundred years, and we're going to talk about a Brit, a Scot, and two Germans. Late 1700s, the age of enlightenment, and there was a questioning of a lot of established authority. The Protestant Reformation had started a couple hundred years before that, and with all the good that it brought about, it did bring about the questioning of a lot of authority. And in England, a man named John Locke starts promoting the idea of individual liberty in our religious beliefs. He didn't think that the Catholic Church or the Church of England should dictate what people believe. He wanted an openness to people having their own beliefs. And you might say, what's wrong with that? Well, at the time, that was a foreign concept for people. And so Locke's writings opened the door to the writings what soon came after of a Scotsman named David Hume. And essentially, David Hume's writings fueled the idea, and I'm going to quote him directly. He said, evidence and simple reasoning should tell us God is either a liar or he's dead. Because Hume could not reconcile the existence of evil with a loving and an all-powerful God. And as a result of his writings, within a couple decades, the early 1800s comes along and European Christianity is in a crisis. The Christians of that time knew only what they'd been taught. They were totally ill-equipped to answer the issues that David Hume had raised. So at this point, two different German theologians come along and they try to essentially rescue God from David Hume. That sounds kind of silly, but I think history essentially records that as happening. The problem is that the answer that these two theologians gave became what today we call as theological liberalism. It's a lower view of God. It's an effort to explain why evil exists. The first one of those was a man named Immanuel Kant. And his view, and I'm, I'm very briefly paraphrasing his views, he said, well, God's so far above us in the things of this world that he's distant he appears to be a little cold and uncaring. The term was transcendent. He intervened by sending his only begotten son, and he intervened in the miracles documented in Scripture, but in between, he kind of leaves us on our alone. Every now and then, he checks in and asks, how's it going? And this was the way that Kant envisioned God, that he wasn't all-loving. He was somewhat aloof, and that was, in very simplistic terms, of how he explained the existence of God 
being compatible with the existence of evil. But one of his fellow countrymen, Friedrich Schleiermacher, let that one roll off your tongue a few times, right? He said, no, 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 that's not it. The reason why there's so much suffering and evil in the world is maybe God isn't as powerful as we thought he was. He's good and he's loving and he's moral and he's certainly far above us, but maybe some things surprise him and he's unable to prevent them. So what you have is Kant's idea of God is that he's not all loving and Schleiermacher's idea is that he's not all powerful. And both of these views, I would describe them as absolute bottomless pits. Things go in and nothing comes out. It's what became known as theological liberalism. And it resulted in the churches in Europe 150 or so years ago adopting this lower view of God. One aspect of it even is called open theism, suggesting God is just not all-knowing and all-powerful. He's surprised. He doesn't know the outcomes of certain things. Because with theological liberalism, either God's so distant and remote he doesn't really care, or he's so present and so loving but he's not all-powerful. And both viewpoints crippled the doctrines of the church, and it has turned those beautiful cathedrals in Europe and the British Isles into more tourist attractions than practicing gospel-centered churches. For you and for me, when we answer this question, why does God permit evil to exist? If we're not careful, we're going to start to do one of those things. We're going to either start to define down what we see God as being, or we're going to do what the serpent said to Eve. We're going to start to question what God really said. Now, I think you know that I think it is proper to seek to understand more. I don't believe that our faith should be a mindless faith. But in the end, we may very well end up on this issue saying, Lord, I do not understand, but I will trust you. And I will trust you no matter what. So you might say, well, if that's the history of it. What does Scripture say? What does Scripture say about why does God allow evil to exist? Well, Let's focus on what it says us says to us. It says that God is good and just. It says that he's loving and he's holy. And it tells us he's not the author of evil. But I think throughout Scripture it also tells us that God does at least permit, if not openly ordain, evil when a greater good comes out of it. And you might say, how so? Well, Arguably, the greatest injustice in all of history was committed at the cross. Jesus, who was guilty of nothing, took the penalty for you and I. And yet, look at how God used that for the salvation of all who will believe. Maybe you could look at the events of the last 12 chapters of Genesis through that lens. Think of the evil that he permitted into Joseph's life. And yet at the end, Joseph could say to his brothers after he was reunited with them, he would say, what happened you meant for evil, but God meant it for good. Many of you know that passage. Now that being said, let's be honest with ourselves. The concept that God permits evil for a greater good is easier for us to accept when we sit comfortably in this church in a peaceful, beautiful northern Michigan tourist town, wearing fairly comfortable clothing, being reasonably well-fed and having at least some of our material wishes met every day. It's easier to accept when that's your situation. It's more difficult to accept the idea that God permits evil for a greater good 
if you're digging through a pile of concrete after a collapsed building in an earthquake and you find the body of a lifeless child. It's more difficult to accept that when a lifelong friend is killed in an act of violence. You see, I think people understand moral evil in the sense that they allow at least for some aspect of human free will, which, by the way, is a future topic in this sermon series, just how much free will do we really have if we have a fallen will. But what about natural evil? Why does that have to exist? Well, one possible answer is that natural disasters are the result of just the presence of sin and brokenness in our world. The Bible says all creation has been groaning since that time. And what happened in Genesis 3, remember, was caused because of what happened with Lucifer and all the angels that were tossed out of heaven in the first fall. It literally sent spiritual and, and emotional and physical shockwaves throughout the universe. The brokenness, the brokenness of this world is sometimes beyond our ability to fully understand. And yet, imagine how much worse it would be were it not for what's called God's common grace, which exists. And it's, it's why people who are not believers, many of them still are good citizens and good parents and good employees, because there is still at least broad definitions of what is good. But one other commentator that I read suggested the following. He said, look at natural evil in the sense of how, you know, a massive forest fire, massive forest fire would be viewed as natural evil. But when that happens, eventually healthier forests with new trees come. After an earthquake, the earth eventually settles Nutrients are brought to the surface. A tornado causes great destruction along a very narrow path. But along a much broader path, typically it brings rain, which fertilizes the soil and brings new life. The examples that the commentator was intending was the following. It may be that though natural evil happens, after it has passed, there is forms of a resurrection because that's actually what happened at the cross. God uses these events for his purposes and in his timing. So this morning we've only scratched the surface on the topic and in a very simplistic sense. But when you and I face moral evil staring us in the face, we cry out to God because we know in his great love he does hear us. And we believe that his ways are best and we accept this. And so we have something that does not have to be contradictory. Evil exists and yet God is still in charge. So you might say, all right, Jim, you've given us all the background and some of the history and all of that. How do you reconcile this in your mind? Well, I honestly don't have an exact answer, but here's what I try to do. He's God and we're not. There's the first reality. His ways are not our ways. And sometimes God does answer our prayers, but his answer is no. That's a tough one, because we don't always want to accept that. And so with that, I want to share with you a fairly short story that some of you have heard me tell this before. Many of you have not. And it's, it's a story of how when I was, had just completed seminary training, and you know, context, remember, I had left my first career after 30 years to follow a, a call to go to seminary and pursue kind of a second career calling in ministry. And it was something of a leap of faith. It really was. 
I remember our personnel director in the school district said to me, you're gonna give up your peak earnings years for something in which you have no guarantees at all? To which I said, yeah, that's what I think I'm gonna do. And I went through the seminary program and it was hard because I hadn't done that kind of study in a long time. Through the grace of God, I completed that program in three years, started applying to different church positions. And I should have been much more discerning in where I applied. I'll admit that. But after applying to maybe a dozen or so of them, and months pass and you receive absolutely nothing, not even an acknowledgement that you exist. And I was really wrestling with that. And then when one place wanted to talk to me, and then I quickly discovered how unacceptable I was to them. And I really was struggling with this, not because I thought I was the greatest thing since sliced bread, I knew I wasn't, but I had been considered pretty successful and very respected in my previous career. And I began to say, did I make a mistake? And I began to wonder whether or not, for some reason, was God preventing all of these things from happening because he was unhappy with me. And this is somebody who had just completed a three-year seminary degree who should have known better. And so I went and talked to one of my pastors at Midland, Midland Evangelical Free Church, where Terry and I had gone for, at that point, about 15 years. Pastor Gibb from Austin, Texas, about six and a half feet tall, with a very slow gentle demeanor as he talked to you in that gentle Texas drawl. And I'm going through all of this stuff and explaining it all to him. And I remember him putting up his hand and he said, Jim, let me ask you a question. And he said, is God good? And I can tell you I paused. And he said, let me ask you again. Is God good? And I still paused. And it literally was like somebody had pulled the stone out of the dike because my emotions just burst forth because I was so embarrassed and so horrified to realize that I had done what Schleiermacher and Kant had done. I had started to question whether God was good. And you know, I was so grateful for his experience and his training that he was able to see the symptoms in me, ask me the question gently but very pointedly. And I said to him, how did you know? And he said, because I've been there many times myself. I needed to stop focusing on my worries and I needed to start focusing on the amazing grace that we have through Jesus Christ. Sometimes we ask the question, why doesn't God just save everybody? It's the wrong question. The right question is, why does he save anybody? We're all sinners. By his grace, he's made salvation freely available. It was not free. The price was very high, but he's made it freely available by faith through grace. We can have a debate about whether or not he chooses us or we choose him. You know, my answer to that question is yes. And that's a future sermon topic in this series too, by the way. But the point is, is that when evil is staring us in the face, and sometimes evil takes gentler forms, 
ongoing disappointment. It isn't necessarily evil, but it's the lack of something that is blessing. And yet, had any of those early positions I applied for come through, I would have never been available to go to Gaylord, where we spent seven years, and I would have never been available to come here. God knew what he was doing, how blessed I was, that the disappointments that he brought in my life caused me to wrestle with some issues within myself. But the bottom line was, I started to question God's goodness, and the reason is I was paying too much attention to myself and not enough attention to his word. That's why. So the bottom line with the problem of evil, don't second-guess God. Don't second-guess God. When evil's staring us in the face, we need to remember he's still on his throne. He knows what he's doing. After all, he's God. We're not. Will you please pray with me? Lord, this is one of those difficult messages. There aren't exact answers. And sometimes in life, we want exact answers. But you have given us in your word, your revealed will in your word tells us of who you are and what you're like and what your attributes are, what your character is like. And you revealed it by sending your only begotten son who came, lived a perfect life, died a fully atoning death, was buried, rose again, ascended back to your presence, and is one day coming again. Lord, we don't know when that day is. We'll even try to talk about that next week as we consider the topic of the end times. But Lord, help us to not focus on when you're coming. Help us to focus on the reality that you are coming again and call us, if we're not saved by your grace, call us to a saving faith and may your light shine in our lives so that others come to that same grace-filled saving faith. I pray, Lord, for all the people here today who to different ways struggle with this issue. Have them know that you are who you say you are, that you are good. You are good all the time and that you will do your will in this world and you will be with us all the days of our lives. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All God's people said...